Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're ready to study God's Word, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity for confession of sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word today. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, freedom that we have to study your word, the freedom we have to freely worship without government interference. Father, we continue to pray that you would preserve and protect this nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to give wisdom to our leaders in the executive branch, legislative branch, and in the judicial branch. There are so many pressures being brought to bear on this nation today that are antagonistic to Christianity, antagonistic to the truth, and antagonistic to freedom. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, guide and direct our president, as well as our military leaders, political leaders, that you would give them wisdom, especially in this war on terrorism. Father, we continue to pray for the security of this nation, because we know that that security rests in your hands and your hands alone. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might be challenged to press on to spiritual maturity, knowing that only in our own spiritual life and as we grow do we provide the salt and light impact for our culture. Father, we pray now that as we study your word, we would be challenged by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John. 3 John, verse 5. 3 John, verse 5. Well, it's been a while since we've actually been in 3 John. The last several weeks we have taken the time out to do sort of a sidetrack study on the faith rest drill and how to utilize promises in walking in truth. This epistle is a personal epistle written by John to an individual by the name of Gaius. We don't know much about Gaius, but some things we can infer from this epistle, and that is that Gaius is not a pastor. Gaius is not the head of a local church, but he seems to be a mature believer in this local church. He's a mature believer who is facing certain problems in the local church as a result of the, the uh, a personality problem with an individual named Diotrephes. That personality problem is grounded in Diotrephes' sin nature. One thing I've discovered over the years is that there are very few people that I can't get along with if we're both walking by the Spirit, but there are some people who just refuse to operate on the basis of the truth on the filling of the Spirit, and that's when you have personality problems. See, the negative facets of our personality, whether you want to admit it or not, is the trend of your sin nature. It's your areas of weakness. It's those trends and the arrogance, and that's true for every single one of us. And so when you say, oh, well, I just don't get along with them, it's a personality conflict, that's just modern uh, psychobabble 
for the fact that it's really a sin nature problem, maybe yours and maybe theirs. And this was a problem in the church there, and Diotrephes loved the preeminence among them. And as a result, he was using his own personality and his own personal uh, desire for attention and prominence to, be, to divide the church. So Gaius has a struggle. And before we get to the problem with Diotrephes, we're going to look at John's praise for Gaius. He begins in verses 2 through 4 by giving him praise because of his devotion to the truth. That's where it starts, is your devotion to the truth, whether or not you are willing to make Bible doctrine a priority in your life. And I don't mean just studying the Word. This is a problem that uh, people often fall into. We are excited about the study of the Word. We learn many things. We are stimulated intellectually by what we learn. And that's about as far as it's going to go for a lot of people. But it goes beyond that. It is not simply learning the truth and going on an intellectual, intellectually exciting trip through Bible doctrine, but applying it. And that's the point of John's praise. He says in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth, that is, the doctrine that is in you, that is, what you have learned, what you know, just as you walk by means of the truth. That's application. That is the Christian way of life. He is walking by means of the doctrine that he has learned. Verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk by means of the truth, that is, they are taking what they have learned and then they are applying it consistently in every area of their life. And that's exactly what has happened in the life of Gaius. He is a mature believer. He has understood all of the dynamics of the Christian life and he's been putting this into practice so that he has reached spiritual maturity. He has learned rebound and used it effectively. He's walking by the Spirit. He's obviously been using the faith rest drill. It's clear from what we're going to see in the next few verses that he is grace-oriented. Grace orientation is the foundation for the mature Christian life. The mature Christian life, as I've said again and again and again, is really based on the love triplex. Personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And he has mastered all of that as evidenced by what he does in and through this local church in whatever town he was in. We don't know where he was located. But he has mastered all of this. You can't love anyone. You can't have love for God, personal love for God. You cannot have impersonal love for others if you don't understand grace. Grace means that everything that we have is neither earned or deserved. Grace means that at salvation, God gave us everything, that he paid the price. The penalty was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't do anything to gain our salvation or to impress God uh, with who and what we are. He loves us because of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. He loved us impersonally before we were ever saved, so that the issue for God is never 
what we've done or what we haven't done. It's neither sins of commission or sins of omission. God's love for us is based exclusively on who He is, and that is a foundation. Grace is then the foundation for us being able to uh, personally love God, which becomes the motivation for impersonal love for other believers. And this is the foundation for uh, the praise for Gaius in these next few verses. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5, John addresses Gaius. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Now, I've read those three verses together, because in the original, that's one sentence. If you're looking at a New American Standard, you probably have it broken into a couple of sentences. The New King James Version breaks it into a couple of sentences. Now, one of the things that I've been emphasizing more and more in the teaching I've been doing with uh, pastors in, in Greek grammar and syntax is recognition of the thought flow of the author. That's why you really get into exegesis, and that's why you get into a lot of grammar and technicalities of syntax is because you're trying to duplicate the thought structure of the author. And a sentence in English is your basic unit of thought. And you have all kinds of sentences. You have simple sentences. You have compound sentences. You have compound complex sentences. And I don't know what you call Paul's sentences because they often go far beyond being a simple compound complex sentence. They can go on for many verses. For example, in the Greek of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that's one long sentence. Now, the reason I emphasize this is because if a sentence is the basic unit of thought, then that sentence represents one thought. It may have many secondary and tertiary ideas in there, but that sentence represents one thought, and that one primary thought that comes across in that sentence may have a lot of stuff stacked up against it that are not to say they're not important, but they're not the main thought. And the main thought is always going to be expressed through your grammatical subject and verb. So I'm going to put it up there like you do in a grammatical diagram. I'll probably scare somebody. That represents your basic thought. Well, in the, I believe it's the New International Reader's Version. The New International Reader's Version takes that sentence in Greek, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and breaks it down into 33 sentences and nine paragraphs. That's probably the most extreme example of that. But if, if see, if that sentence is broken down into, into 33 sentences, then you don't have one topic anymore, do you? You now have 33 topics. And you lose, completely lose, the original author's thought flow once you do that. And see, the key in interpretation, which must always precede application, is that you have to know what the author had in mind and what the author is communicated. See, meaning 
is located in the mind of the author, not in the mind of the reader. Now, that runs completely contrary to what happens in modern literature. For example, in modern literary interpretation, based on postmodernism, meaning is in the reader, it's not in the author. Therefore, you have interpretations today, for example, with um, in, in Charles Dickens, in uh, <clears throat> the story about uh, uh, Oliver, uh, uh, Oliver Twist, you have uh, Fagin, who is now a pedophile, because he likes to have all these children. And so, you, you know, see, now what you're doing is you're reinterpreting Dickens in light of a, 19, uh, a 1990s or year 2000 context, and you're not interpreting on the basis of the time in which it was written. And that happens, they do that to Shakespeare and all kinds of other, and you wouldn't believe some of the bizarre interpretations that are being taught college students today on classic literature simply because meaning is no longer in the uh, mind of the author, it's in the mind of the reader. Of course, they don't apply that when it comes to filling out their income tax. See, that's the real uh, final point here. However you interpret your income, income tax instructions, that has to do with, that, that shows real literal interpretation because you don't want to get in jail. So we have to get into the grammar of this a little bit, and that uncovers the meaning. So five through seven is one sentence. Now before we can start looking at the bits and pieces in that sentence, we have to understand the structure of that overall sentence. And this is a a key issue in doing any kind of exegesis, and that is to start with the overall sentence structure and figure out where your main clause is and then figure out how everything else relates to it. So just on first blush, when you look at your English Bible, you probably have it broken into one or maybe you have it broken into two or maybe three sentences. And that tells you right away that there's a problem because the author is expressing only one idea here, not two or three ideas. And the main concept is expressed in the first part of verse 5, which is translated, you do faithfully. So we're going to have to look at the word studies there to understand what that talks about. And he says, I'll write the English up here, you do faithfully, then everything else he says in these next two verses modifies that basic idea. And starts off, you do is a translation of the Greek verb poiase. And poiase is a second person singular of poieo, which means to do, to make, to manufacture, or to produce. So we're talking about the production in the spiritual life of Gaius. See, every believer gets involved in spiritual production, and spiritual service is part of spiritual production. We're starting to teach about spiritual service under the category of spiritual gifts in the first hour in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're getting a double dose of that today. You do has to do with the production of the believer under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about works. This is talking about spiritual production. What happens is a result of spiritual growth, 
spiritual maturity and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so John is saying that you do, and then he modifies the verb with uh, actually a it's it's translated as an adverb in the English, which is probably the way to give it the most sense. But it's actually an accusative direct object in the Greek, and that's the word faithfully, which is in Greek the word pistos. It's the accusative case of pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, which is related to a familiar word, pestas, which is the word for faith. And so this word is usually translated in terms of its root etymological meaning, and that is faithful or faithfully. You do, actually you have an ellipsis here, it's you do things faithful. You are faithful in what you do. And so to make it read a little easier in the English, we translate that as an adverb. You do what you do faithfully. But pistos loses some of its sense when we talk about faithfully, because as soon as you take this word faith and put it in some sort of religious context, immediately people lose a sense of what we're talking about. And the idea that you have in pistos is the idea of of character. It is reliability. It's dependability. It is the fact that as you grow as a believer, you can be counted on in terms of the way you live your life. It is rooted and grounded in a personal integrity that is the result of grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Only as the believer grows is he going to be able to produce uh, integrity under the filling of the Holy Spirit and a spiritual virtue of dependability and reliability. This is a kind of person that can be counted on in a crunch, counted on in a crisis to do what needs to be done. These are the kind of people that are going to show up and do things on a work day. We had a work day yesterday and we ran the phone tree. We had about 20 people who signed up to help, and we had about maybe 10 people showed up. That's not reliability or dependability. That is, a, that is an example of spiritual failure on the part of half those people who said they would be here and were not, because one of the reasons we want run that phone tree is to find out who's going to be here so we can properly apportion the work. So when we set up the work schedule, on, on de- um, based on the idea that 20 people are going to be here to help and 10 people show up, then it puts an a- excess amount of work on the backs of those who do show up. And we are very fortunate in the fact that we have some men in this congregation who are extremely dependable and faithful in taking care of this old building because that's almost a full-time job in and of itself. Now, that is an illustration of dependability and reliability. And so Gaius, as a result of his spiritual maturity, is demonstrating personal spiritual integrity based on his spiritual growth from following the Christian way of life. It indicates that he has a biblical scale of values in his soul. He knows where his priorities are, and he is going to put... (coughs) Uh, spiritual priorities and priorities related to the local church over personal 
priorities and personal benefit. He is also indicates he has objectivity. He is not subject, sub, subjective or self-centered. It indicates that he has a view of life that is oriented to divine viewpoint, and he is willing to put his emphasis on things that have an eternal value and not put his emphasis on things that only have a short-term or limited value. So this sentence begins with a word of praise for Gaius because he is reliable and he is dependable. But he's not just reliable and dependable generally, although that would be true for this man, that he is reliable and dependable in a particular area of life, an area of life that we all should pay attention to. He is reliable and dependable in hospitality. See, what we have here is a series of relative clauses to define the arena of his reliability and his dependability. He is dependable, first of all, in what he does for the brethren and for strangers. In what he does for brethren and for strangers. And then that is further modified by another masculine plural relative clause at the first part of 6. They are defined as those who have borne witness. They have presented a testimony. They have spread the word about what? His love. That's what they've been talking about. They have spread before the local congregation where John is. They've come back and they have uh, testified and borne witness of his love. So what we're talking about is he is faithful in the arena of application of love. Application of impersonal love for all mankind because it is directed to two categories of people, those who are classified as brethren. And in this context, it's not a contrast between brethren being believers and strangers being unbelievers. Because as we'll see, he's talking about itinerant pastors who are coming through the area, what we would call today missionaries. But he doesn't know them. And it talks about his hospitality and his generosity towards missionaries and to uh, others who are traveling and teaching the word. So he talks about the fact that he's faithful in whatever he does for these traveling missionaries classified as brethren and strangers to plural nouns. So we have the phrase, who have borne witness of your love? So the brethren and strangers have come on to John's church in, in Ephesus, and they are extolling the virtues of Gaius. And then the next clause, which is usually set apart as another sentence, and it's not, starts off with another masculine plural relative pronoun, and it says, and it should be translated, whom you sent forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do, you will do well. Uh, it's talking about the fact that he has, that when he sends them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, he has done a good thing. And then there would be a semicolon. And then a final causal statement, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So the point in verse 7 emphasizes the grace orientation operation of the traveling missionaries. They were not going to take uh, money or depend upon the Gentiles for their financial support. 
And so they were dependent upon other believers. They were dependent upon local churches to support them financially in their endeavor. So what we see in the structure of verses 5 through 7 is that John is praising Gaius because he has made his home, his own home, available as a place for traveling teachers, pastors, and missionaries to stay. He treats them well. He feeds them. He sends them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That means he is so gracious that his grace reflects the grace of God. His kindness to these people, whom, many of whom he doesn't know, is a kindness that is going to be remarked on and used as an example to others of how we as believers should treat missionaries and pastors. And notice Gaius is not someone who is uh, special. He is not a pastor. He's not somebody who's, who takes a, a special class, who is a special class of Christian. He is just an ordinary believer in a local congregation. And there is a lot to learn from Gaius in relationship to the way he applies doctrine. His doctrine comes out of the framework of his love. Verse 6 talks about his love, and we've studied love under two categories, personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind. So what we see here is that the way he has treated the brethren, that would be known missionaries and and pastors and strangers, that would be those he was not familiar with, the way he treats them is an application of his love. So let's go back and understand a couple of things about impersonal love. First of all, Impersonal love means that the issue is in the object, not the subject of love. When you make the statement, I love you, if the emphasis is on the attractiveness of the object of that statement, that is personal love. It's because something you, you know them. There's something about their character that is attractive. Or there's something about their physical person that is attractive. You enjoy them. You have certain things in common with that person. You enjoy their company. You like socializing with them. All of those things, in personal love, you love the individual because of who and what they are. In impersonal love, you don't even have to know the person. That's why we call it impersonal love. It's not because it's cold. It's not because it's some sort of... um, a rigid mechanical thing. It is simply the fact that you don't even have to know this individual. It may be a cashier at the grocery store. It may be somebody driving down the highway. It may be anyone you see in life, and you don't have to have any relationship. It may be an orphan. It may be somebody who is uh, uh, physically destitute. It could be anybody. You don't have to know, know them. The emphasis is on the eye. That's what makes it objective. It is on the individual and it's based on his character. It's based on his virtue and his integrity. And since you as a sinner are not born with any natural virtue or integrity, the only way you're going to get it is if it is produced in, in you by God the Holy Spirit. 
And that comes through, through spiritual growth. So what we see here is in the development of impersonal love, which I sometimes call unconditional love because it's not based on any conditions in the one you love, this impersonal love has a tremendous impact outside of our immediate sphere. And we're going to see this in Gaius, that as a result of his impersonal love, he is having a tremendous impact that goes far beyond his immediate town or village or the people he knows. And this impersonal love is directed specifically here towards missionaries. And what we're going to see in our study this morning is that this whole concept of impersonal love became the foundation in Western history for the development of what I will call genuine social improvement. Now, as soon as I say that, somebody goes, oh, no, some kind of social gospel liberalism. Well, that's only because you live in a post-19th century world. But prior to the influx of liberal theology, which basically said, see, what you had initially was the Bible. And the Bible taught people to be kind and gracious and generous, even to those who were enemies of the cross. And as a result of that, uh, Christians throughout the ages saw a social impact from Christianity to unbelievers. And that was a function of being salt and light in their generation. And it was frequently utilized as an opportunity to gain a hearing for the gospel and to witness. And we'll see some specifics of that before we're done this evening. And as a result of the impact of the Bible on the spiritual life of individuals, they saw a general social application. Well, what happened with liberalism is liberalism came along and said the Bible is just another religion. The Bible doesn't say anything absolute. The Bible doesn't have anything to do with where we live because the Bible is just another historical record of man's religious experiences. But this social application stuff that came out of Christianity is pretty good, and we ought to hold on to that. So that's really the, if you want to get to the real heart of Christianity, it's this social application stuff. And by the late 19th century, that became known as the social gospel. And what happened in the fundamentalist liberalism controversy, because nobody wanted to be tainted, no conservatives wanted to be tainted with the, with the stigma of being involved with, this, with the social gospel and giving up the truth of the word, that conservative Christians tended to uh, ignore the social application from the scripture. And they're going to sit over here and we're going to just study the Bible and we're going to have some application uh, personally, but we're not going to get involved in any kind of social application. That's nothing but do-goodism. That's nothing but do-goodism, and it's uh, human good, and it's just wood, hay, and straw, and it's going to all be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that's true to a certain extent. Social gospel stuff is do-goodism. It is human good. It is going to be burned up at the cross. But you see, the social impact, the impact on society around you, from the truth of the gospel, uh, 
And the application of impersonal love is going to produce divine good when it's done under the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, let's take two people. We're going to have Bill and we're going to have Sam. Now, Bill goes out and he witnesses and he's going to give money to various charities that take care of uh, uh, of the poor and he is going to get involved in some some ministries to the uh, uh, to poverty stricken people himself he's going to go down he's going to witness and do all of this and Sam's going to do the same thing in other words you look at these two guys and they're doing the same thing now Bill over here He's going to operate under the filling of the Holy Spirit. He has Bible doctrine in his soul. He has the gift of evangelism, and he's operating um, on the basis of doctrine. He understands the principle of impersonal love as clarified in when Jesus gave the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, that even though you don't know this individual who's been hijacked along the road, and you don't know anything about his situation, but here he is bloody and beaten, and his clothes are torn. You're still going to pick him up, and you're going to take care of him. You're going to spend money on him, and you're going to help him, even though you don't know him. And, of course, see, in the in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what's bad about that is that the, there was a Jew on the side of the road, and the Samaritan is a person who's looked down upon and is the lower class element in Jewish society because the Samaritans lived north of Judea and they were kind of a half Jewish, half Gentile race. And so the Jews had tremendous prejudice against them. And Jesus used the Samaritan to show that this Samaritan, even though he is uh, looked down upon by the Jews, he's demonstrating real genuine love by the way he treats the person he doesn't even know on the side of the road. So Bill is going to be involved in that kind of an operation under the filling of the Spirit. Therefore, because it's production under the filling of the Spirit, and it's the application of love, which is a fruit of the Spirit, this is going to be divine good. Sam comes along. He does the same thing. But Sam is doing it out of legalism, and he's trying to impress God with his good work so that he can grow spiritually or get saved. So he does the exact same thing that Bill does, And the result is it's human good. And it's going to be wood, hay, and straw. In other words, good deeds, too many people get the idea that somehow good deeds and good works are wrong. Altruism is wrong. Giving to charities is wrong. And yet, I want you to understand that in Western civilization, it was Christianity that gave birth to hospitals. It was Christianity that gave birth to orphanages. It was Christianity that gave birth to uh, in England in the late 1700s and early 1800s, hundreds of societies that dedicated themselves to social improvement. Notice I said late 1700s and early 1800s. That's before the advent of liberalism to, to an, having an impact from the gospel on society. And that was all part of missions. And the missionary outreach, except it was to your own uh, country, but in a cross-cultural sort of sense. So what we see here is the application of impersonal love is not just restricted to 
handling people who you don't find very attractive. It's not restricted to uh, taking care of problems with your spouse when, when they're not very lovable or treat, dealing with your children or your parents when they're not very lovable. Impersonal love goes beyond your immediate circle of influence, and impersonal love became the foundation in history for Christianity to make a social impact. A social impact, and this is the kind of thing that we see in a small way taking place with Gaius. He is opening up his home, and he is welcoming people he knows and people he doesn't know into his home. He's feeding them, he's clothing them, he's giving them from his financial resources, and he is sending them on their way in at least as good a shape as they were when they came, if not a better way. And this is an illustration in the Scriptures of the doctrine of hospitality. So let's start with a uh, few points on the doctrine of hospitality in the scripture. First of all, first point, hospitality begins with a mental attitude. Hospitality is not what you do, it's how you think. It begins with a mental attitude and it is grace orientation in action. Hospitality is grace orientation in action. Hospitality has to do with how you treat other people, someone who is gracious and generous in spirit toward other people. Point number two, hospitality is not a matter matter of money or financial ability. Hospitality is not a matter of money or financial ability. It has to do with your own soul and its grace orientation, not how much money you can afford to help people or to entertain people or to have a social impact. It starts off with grace orientation. Now, third point, let's look at the Greek word. Basic Greek word is philosenia. P-H-I-L-O-Z-E-N-I-A. Philozenia. Now this is a compound word. Philo from philos meaning love. And zenia from xenos meaning a stranger. And so it came to mean showing love to a stranger or being hospitable. Opening your door to a stranger. Now let's see how I, why true hospitality contrasts with human viewpoint. We have some human viewpoint illustrations. Point number four, contrast with human viewpoint. In classical Greek, Homer recognized the fact that certain, uh, <clears throat> that hospitality towards strangers was a mark of civilization. He contrasted with the way certain barbaric, that is non-Greek tribes were, and he showed that hospitality was a mark of civilization. So even under establishment principles, uh, unbelievers recognize a certain degree of hospitality. We have to remember that in many primitive societies, many by primitive I mean early societies, that's the basic meaning of the word primitive, 
strangers were often equated with enemies and the unknown. So if you were in a small village and a stranger came along, people weren't ready to open up the village and let him in because he was he could be an enemy. He might be out to take advantage of us. He might be out to destroy us. So stranger also in many in many uh, uh, languages, the word stranger and the word enemy were the same word. And this would be the natural inclination of the sin nature is to be protective and rather than to be open and to be vulnerable. Therefore, hospitality in its full sense is going to have to wait for Christianity, have to wait for a greater concept of love than that which can be expressed on the basis of the sin nature alone. So that there is no real excuse then, as we'll see, for a believer not to be hospitable, not to be open and generous towards other people, even towards strangers. So this leads to point number five, that hospitality is a subcategory of the doctrine of impersonal love. Hospitality is a subcategory, an application of the doctrine of impersonal love. Uh, John 13:34 Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Now we've gone through a study of John 13:34 many many times. We spent a lot of time on that in our study of 1 John and 2 John. And in that passage Jesus is talking about the love that believers have for other believers. But see, in the illustration that Jesus gave earlier of the love demonstrated by the Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the the uh, individual lying by the side of the road that had been hijacked and beaten up, it, his spiritual status was unknown by the Samaritan who stopped. That was an, an illustration of the principle of Leviticus 19.18, which is reiterated in Galatians 5.14, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in the principle of the Good Samaritan, what Jesus was illustrating was an answer to the question, who's your neighbor? The neighbor is anyone who comes into your sphere of influence. You are to treat them out of love, what is best for them, even to the point where you may give them a coat off your back, you may uh, pay their medical bills, you may be able to help them out. That became the foundation in Western society for what <clears throat> for the development of hospitals. The word hospital has the same etymological root as the word hostile. For example, if you travel in Europe, some places you'll stay in a hostel. That's a guest house. That's the basic etymological root. It has the same basic root as hospitality. They, they all go back to the same core idea of taking someone into your home. And originally, a guest house would also treat uh, people who were injured, people who were sick, and that eventually developed into the modern institution of a hospital. But if you go around the world... You will not find hospitals in Islamic cultures unless they've been brought there from the West. You will not find hospitals in Buddhist cultures. You will not find hospitals in Hindu cultures. You will today, but that's because they were imported from the Christian West. See, if you're, the, the whole concept of treating the sick 
the whole concept of taking care of orphans and getting them off the street and providing a nourishment for them and jobs and helping them out. All of that had its roots in Christianity and the concept of impersonal love and application of the parable of the Good Samaritan and application of the law to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is how Christianity has revolutionized society. And yet we live in an age today where, as conservatives, too often we backtrack away from this kind of social impact and social involvement, label it just do-goodism, but that's because we're in a post-social gospel world and we've taken our, our antagonism to the social gospel to an illegitimate extreme. So, we recognize that hospitality is a subcategory of the doctrine of impersonal love, point number five. Point number six, thus hospitality involves an attitude of personal generosity towards others. An openness, a willingness to, to uh, invite people into your home. A desire to help the less fortunate a desire to help those who are in need of help with no expectation of any return whatsoever. Hospitality is something that I have found is is rarely taught in local churches and rarely emphasized. And especially it should, and it should be especially in the context in which we're talking about in 3 John and that is towards missionaries and towards uh, pastors, because these are people who have given up much in their life in order to serve the Lord in communicating the gospel and teaching the truth. Now, point number seven is going to recognize a problem with hospitality. The problem is that this is in conflict with the natural, self-centered, arrogant orientation of the sin nature. Frequently what we do is we say, well, you know, uh, this, such hospitality as you see in vision in Scripture is in conflict with, uh, with privacy. We so emphasize the importance of privacy that we don't want to get, you know, get involved with somebody else, have them come into our house, go over to their house. Uh, we want to stay too isolated. So some people want to use the doctrine of privacy to rationalize away generous hospitality. We also use our busy schedules to justify not being hospitable. But in fact, what we're doing is we're just ignoring the real issues. We're too involved in our own self-absorbed lifestyle, and we often rationalize away uh, things because it just, uh, I don't have the time, I don't have the money, uh, I don't have enough room in my house, and yet... Most of us live in homes probably far, far superior to the home that Gaius lived in. Once again, see, generosity and hospitality is a matter of what goes on in your soul, not the size of your bank account or the size of your home. So, point number eight. The Christian doctrine of hospitality, this is a point I've already referenced, Christian doctrine of hospitality became the foundation for the development of guest houses and hotels and eventually the whole concept of hospitals. Now, this just gives us a framework for understanding what the Bible says about hospitality. Let's look at some scripture. Let's look at some scripture. Turn over 
to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. And there we have the word agape, love for brothers, continue, present active imperative of meno, which is a word we're used to. It means to abide and to continue. And here it doesn't have to do with fellowship, but it has to do with the concept of ongoing action. So there is a mandate here to continue to apply the concept of love for one another. And then there's some application in verse 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not forget to entertain strangers. And the word there for entertaining strangers is philozenos, which is the noun form of philozenia. And philozenos, actually it's the adjectival form, philozenos is the adjectival form and it means to have hospitality, to be hospitable, to show love for strangers. And the word that's translated forget there, that, that is a kind of a weak way of translating it, is the present active imperative of epilanthonomai, which means to neglect or to be inattentive to something, to overlook something, to disregard something, to care nothing about something. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't neglect, don't overlook, don't be inattentive to, don't care less about hospitality. In other words, hospitality needs to be a characteristic of the believer's life, opening his home, opening his life to helping others, and especially towards those who are in ministry, In, for example, uh, missionaries and others, as we see in our application in Third John. So the writer of Hebrews emphasizes this and says, "For by so doing, some have unwittingly or unknowingly entertained angels." Now, there's a lot of people who go to inordinate application of that, and they'll all say, "Well, you know, I'm just going to invite anybody I don't know in, or somebody comes by the house and knocks on the door and wants a place to sleep. I'll just let them come in because they might be an angel." Well, the writer of Hebrews has a particular instance in mind, so I want you to turn back to the Old Testament, and we'll see once again that you can't understand the New Testament unless you have some comprehension of the Old Testament. So we'll go back to Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, we see an illustration of hospitality in the Old Testament. In fact, we see a contrast. There's a sub-theme on Genesis 18 and 19 of hospitality versus inhospitality. And in Genesis 18, we have the episode of where three men come to visit Abraham, and we see his hospitality. Verse 1 we read, Then the Lord, see we're told ahead of time, who one of the men is. It's not really a man. It is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in a human form. But Abraham doesn't know that. Then Yahweh appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, 
as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, I have now found favor in your sight. Do not pass on by your servant. By Lord, he uses the word Adonai. He is not addressing him as Yahweh Lord. He's just addressing him in a polite form of address. It would be like saying, Sir, I have now found favor in your sight. You've come by here. Come on, come by the house, rest, and we, I will feed you and take care of your uh, needs for water. I'll wash your feet and you rest, and I'll bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And see, we read this too rapidly. See, we live in an age when you can even say, oh, come on in the house and I'll feed you. We'll go in and we'll pull something out of the refrigerator and pop it in the microwave and heat it up, and we've got dinner on the table in five minutes. This is in a very primitive, probably desert environment in Judah where you have to go out and drop the bucket down the well to get the water when you're going to have a a goat for dinner. And see, uh, Abraham is going to pull out all the stops, and he is going to provide a full uh, five-course meal for his guests. That means he has to go out and slaughter the goat, skin the goat, butcher the goat, come in and prepare the goat, build the fire. Uh, Sarah has to do the work and with, with her servants. She has to, you know, pick the vegetables out of the garden, wash them off, chop them up, make everything. We're talking about a four- or five-hour procedure here. He's not saying, hey, I've got a sandwich in there with a few leftovers. We'll just take care of you right now. This is a major operation that is taking time and energy out of Abraham's busy schedule and his daily plan. I'm sure he had something else in mind to do that day other than to take five or six hours out of his day to feed these three visitors. So this is an illustration of their of his generosity. So he goes into the tent to Sarah in verse 6. He says, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. I don't know how many of you have baked bread in your life, but baking a loaf of bread is not something you do quickly. So it is, they're taking time. Now, it may have been unleavened bread, and he goes out and he takes a calf from the herd, not a goat, but as I said earlier, but a calf, and he prepares that. He takes butter and milk and the calf, and he prepares it. So this takes time and energy and effort. Now, in contrast to this, you have the hospitality of the folks down in Sodom, because you see two of these men who are really angels are going to go on down to Sodom, and we see an illustration of their hospitality in verse 4 of the next chapter. Now, they had been accepted and invited into Lot's house. Remember, Lot has the influence of Abraham, a believer on him, and so he is very hospitable to the men who visit him. But the carnal, the, the unbelievers in, in Sodom come out in verse, uh, Four And they say, now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. In other words, uh, we want to uh, rape, homosexually rape the, your, your guests. So that's the kind of hospitality you have in Sodom. So one of the sub-themes in 
Genesis 18 and 19 is this contrast between the hospitality of Abraham and Lot, represented as believers, and the inhospitality of the Sodomites. So we see this as a reference to uh, for, for Hebrews 13.2, because when these men came to Abraham, one is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and two are angels. So when he is entertaining these strangers, he is what? He is entertaining angels. And that's the background for understanding Hebrews 13.2, where the writer of Hebrews says, Remember, there have been some who have been hospitable towards strangers, and they have unknowingly entertained Angels, And then he goes on to say in Hebrews 13.3, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. In other words, there's an application of impersonal love towards the prisoners. That is an application of, of was a, applied at the end of the uh, 18th century and into the 19th century in prison reform and the reform on debtor's prison, and it came out of a positive and accurate application of doctrine. Now, it went way too far. Once it was divorced from its sound biblical roots, now you have a reformation in the prisons where the purpose of a prison isn't punishment. It's uh, uh, to completely rehabilitate the prisoner, and that ignores the concept of crime, puts the emphasis on the criminal and not on the victim and a host of other things. But that came out of liberal theology in the 19th century. And initially, prison reform came out of a positive application of this principle in Hebrews 13.3, a legitimate social application of the principle of being salt and light in a culture. 1 Peter 4. Let's flip over to 1 Peter 4. We'll see another passage on, on hospitality. And above all things, Peter says, have fervent love for one another. It's an imperatival participle with the noun love. And that imperatival participle, to have love for one another, is then applied in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So there we have an imperatival mandate to have hospitality toward one another without grumbling. See, Peter knew something that most of us don't want to admit, and that is that you really don't want to be hospitable when some missionary is coming through and get an opportunity to put them up or pick them up at the airport or take them out to dinner to get to know them. We're too busy doing something else to be involved in that process. But this is a this is again enjoined among believers in Romans 12:13 where we're distributing to the needs of the saints. That's dealing with poverty, giving to help out those who are impoverished. Romans 12:13 and given to hospitality. Uh, pastors, as under the uh, title of bishops in 1 Timothy 3:2, are to be hospitable. Uh, also in T- Titus 1:8. Uh, the widows who were to be helped supported by the local church were supposed to be hospitable in 1 Timothy 5.10. So hospitality is enjoined on believers as part of the function of impersonal love, and that's what's going on in 3 John with uh, Gaius. He is applying hospitality 
toward missions and missionaries. And I have run across an excellent historical example of this going back to, once again, the late 1700s in the person of a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Now, Wilberforce is most widely known because of it was Wilberforce who spearheaded the abolition of the slave trade in the late 1700s. Wilberforce was born into an aristocratic, not a, I mean, an aristocratic home, an upper class home, but it was a merchant home. He was not uh, born into uh, royalty, but he had a came from a wealthy family. So when he came of age, his father died when he was about 10 years old. And when he, and his mother died in the late 1790s, his aunt and uncle, who had no children, were quite wealthy. And when they died, they left everything to him. So he was a very wealthy man. Now I'm not. Now when we read about some of the things he did, some of you may excuse this and say, "Well, he had a lot of money, and I don't." But you're you're missing the point. The point isn't how much he did. The point is he understood along with several other key people at a critical time in the history of England, what an ordinary believer could do in impacting the society around him. Uh, Wilberforce became a believer probably when he was 10 or 11 years old. After his dad died, his mother became ill, and so he was farmed out to his aunt and uncle for a couple of years. His aunt and uncle were saved under the evangelistic ministry of George Whitfield. They were also good friends with John Newton, the former slave trader who was the one who wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace. And it was at that time when Wilberforce was only about 11 or 12 years old that he got, first got to know John Newton. And I believe it was at that time that Wilberforce became saved. But when he went back home to live with his mother, she was had fallen prey to what was called latitudinarianism in the Anglican Church then, which is what we would probably call liberalism today. And that was the idea that Christianity is great, let's have a lot of ritual, but let's not let it impact anything that we do in life. And she didn't like this evangelical movement that was going on in England at the time, thought it was very dangerous. In fact, Wilberforce's grandfather threatened to disinherit him if he continued with his evangelical beliefs. And under all of this social pressure during his teenage years, he pretty much gave up his uh, evangelical inclinations. And by the time he was in college and university at Cambridge, he was going to a Unitarian church and had no concern whatsoever for Christianity or the Bible. It wasn't until he was in his late 20s, when he was 27 years of age, uh, that he became interested through some of his acquaintances in evangelical truth and decided to make a commitment. Now, I hate to use that term in light of what uh, American revivalism did to it, but in essence, that's what it did. He wrestled for a period of six or seven months with the demands that he knew Christianity placed on him. He knew that being a believer who who understood the Bible and believed in the Bible, that that would impact the way he lived. It would change how he lived, and he thought about it. He talked to friends about how it would change his life. By then, he was a member of Parliament in England, and he knew that it would impact the way he conducted business as a politician. And he was willing to step to the plate of what he understood to be the obligations that Scripture put upon a Christian man. 
Now, this was a time in England, it's roughly the same time as our American War for Independence and just after, which was a time of incredible corruption in the political sphere in England. Parliamentary seats were virtually bought and sold. Uh, bribery was the uh, status quo. Sexual immorality among the aristocratic classes was al- almost um, uh, common. In the Anglican Church, a form of liberalism had swept through the church to where there was very little said about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So it was a time of tremendous social decline. Also, the Industrial Revolution had just begun. And so there were, with the invention of these machines, uh, people who had historically worked the fields and the farms uh, had, were losing their jobs, so they were coming into the cities and they were working in factories, and so they were working 16-hour days, and there were a tremendous number of uh, social abuses, which are usually pictured quite well in the novels by Charles Dickens. But it was a result of Christians not liberal do-gooders, but Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical believers who saw that their Christianity uh, should have an impact on uh, society. And a lot of this was spearheaded by Wilberforce. Part of that was, of course, his uh, move against the slave trade. Another part of it had to do with the fact that he saw this moral decline in England and he decided that he would spearhead a campaign, a personal campaign, not a political campaign, but a personal campaign to make doing good popular, to make morality popular, what they called a reformation of manners. By that they meant a reformation of morals. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. And he enlisted the aid of the king. Now, the king isn't going to legislate anything, but the king was going to uh, back him up in whatever he did. He also enlisted the support of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he realized, you know, you have to um, have the right people in place. And as a result of that, and a group of evangelicals that he was associated with, they laid the groundwork for what happened to England as a client nation to God in the 19th century and laid the foundations for all of of the missions movement that came out of England that took the gospel around the world in the 19th century. He did this not because he was trying to promote a government program. He did not do that. He didn't legislate this. He did it through the power of personal example. And it wasn't just him, but there were others that got on board with him, other believers. And this is the challenge to to us is what an ordinary believer like a Gaius or like a William Wilberforce can do in impacting the society around them. That's part of our function as being salt and light. He understood the principle of humility and impersonal love for those who were less fortunate. Before he was married, he wasn't married till his mid-30s, he gave approximately 25% of his annual income to charitable organizations, the typical organizations that help the poor. But he also personally supported seminary students so that they could go through uh, seminary because he knew that the only real hope for changing society was the Word of God. So he supported seminary students. He supported orphanages. 
He helped found the British and Foreign Bible Society. He understood that what changed his life was the Word of God, so he and his friends founded the Bible and Foreign Bible Society, and the British, I mean the British Foreign Bible Society, which was the model for the American Bible Society, the first president of whom was John Jay, who was the first Supreme Court Justice, head of the Supreme Court in the U.S., and was an evangelical believer. As part of his impact, he made an emphasis on making the Scripture available throughout the world. Starting in 1793, he led a 20-year fight in Parliament to convince the British government to allow Christian missionaries into England. Now, let me say something about these friends. They, they were a group that most of whom lived in a small village just south of London called Clapham. And it was a well-connected and financially successful group. And among them, there were several aristocrats and successful businessmen because any kind of impact, any kind of missionary impact, it has to be funded. We don't sometimes like to talk about money, but missionaries need money. And it is believers who give that make possible what they do. That's part of hospitality, part of impersonal love, part of evangelism. Well, these folks made it a point to pray for and to be involved in social change as an application of doctrine. Out of their group came five members of parliament who were never defeated in their entire political campaign. Their enemies called them derisively the saints. Later generations called them the Clapham sect, as if it was a negative thing. But I'll just refer to them as the Clapham group. Their members included a man named Henry Thornton, who was a financial genius and a successful merchant banker, and it was his business expertise that gave uh, them a lot of uh, financial ability to do what they did. Thornton himself gave away six-sevenths of his income before he was married, and after he was married, he gave more than a third of his income away in support of various mission endeavors. Uh, one impact they had was opening up India to missionaries. Uh, since 1613, the East India Company was a privately owned stock company that controlled all the trade into India and the Far East. That company pro, uh, prohibited missionaries from going into India. They viewed the missionaries as troublemakers, and they refused to allow them to print any tracts that were critical of Hinduism or Islam because it would just uh, create instability in the region. It would hurt their profit margin. But in the late 1700s, the uh, director of the East India Company was a man named Charles Grant who had led a rather profligate, immoral lifestyle and worked his way up the corporate ladder on the backs of everyone ahead of him. When two of his children died of smallpox, he received the jolt he needed to recognize that he needed to turn to Jesus Christ, and he became a believer. At, that, at the time that he was appointed director of the East India Company, in about 1805, he went back to England and became a member of Parliament. He had tremendous influence with the Clapham Group, and through their influence, laws were passed in Parliament that uh, appointed chaplains for the... 
East India Company. Those chaplains also performed as missionaries. And in 1813, when the charter for the East India Company came up for renewal, the Clapham Group mobilized public opinion and used their political contacts and skills to get a missionary clause inserted into the new charter. And this precedent set open the door for missionaries to go to India, China, and Burma. Without that, Hudson Taylor never would have gone in and started the China Inland Mission in China uh, a, a couple of decades later. So this laid the groundwork because of their willingness to be involved socially as an application of impersonal love. It opened the door to foreign missions and basically kicked off what is called the modern um, missions movement. And one of the more, more interesting characters at this same time in history was a man named William Carey who was a cobbler, just an ordinary believer who understood the importance of taking the gospel to the lost. And he was uh, raised support, had financial support and financial backing, and went to India in the 1770s. And as a result of the in the, the change in legislation brought about by the Clapham Group, he was able to bring in other missionaries, and they worked for years before they had any converts. In fact, uh, Carey labored for seven years in India before he had his first convert. So the next time you're discouraged about something, just think about William Carey in India. And then in March 11, 1832, he had a he was away from his print shop they had been working for years to translate the bible into hindi to make it available for the average uh, indian and he was away teaching the bible and his associate william ward was working in the print shop when he smelled smoke and the bottom line was the print shop burned down that night so the next day uh they sent a messenger to calcutta where Carey was teaching and told him that informed him that the print shop burned to the ground. Of course, he was absolutely stunned at the news. He had lost a massive polyglot dictionary that he had worked on for over 40 years, two grammar books for the uh, Hindi language, 1,200 reams of paper, 55,000 printed sheets, and 30 pages of his Bengal dictionary. In fact, he lost his entire library. Well, he recognized that the work of years, 40 years there, had, were gone in a moment. Now, for many of us, we would throw a temper tantrum and say, why would God allow this to happen? But he recognized that though the loss was heavy, he realized that going down that road, he said, going down that road a second time is usually easier than the first time, so I will trust the work will lose nothing of real value. We're not discouraged. Indeed, the work has already begun again in every language, he wrote. When news of the fire reached England, it catapulted him to instant fame. He made the front page of all the newspapers, and as a result of that, thousands of British pounds, that would be at that time equate to hundreds of thousands of American dollars, were raised in a short time. Volunteers by the dozens came forward to help, and an incredible missionary outreach developed in India as a result of that fire and the loss of everything and the publicity that went with it. But see, what I'm pointing out here is the principle that we see in Third John. Is Gaius is 
hospitable to these missionaries. It is a function of our impersonal love to support missionaries and to support missions and to promote the teaching of the word and to take care of them in a manner worthy of God. You know, in the old days, what people would do is they would bring in all their cast-off clothes and they'd throw them in a missionary, what they'd call the missionary barrel. And the next time the missionary came through, he got everybody second-hand, third-hand, and fourth-hand clothes. What we ought to be doing is giving the missionaries, going down to the store and buying them brand-new clothes, designer clothes or whatever the best, sending them to the missionaries, and then when they get done, have them send their cast-offs back to us. And that's the idea, is to give them the very best, to treat them in the best. And there's a tremendous application there for every believer to think about, and I challenge each of you as families to take on one of our missionaries as a project to get to know that missionary better, to write letters to that missionary, to try to understand in a better way what their personal needs are and what's going on in their sphere of activity. And that is a function of how we as a body of believers can increase our own understanding of the missionaries we support, but also an expression of hospitality. And then on those rare occasions, when we have somebody come through here who's a missionary, be willing to get involved in in, uh, putting them up for the night, to take them out to dinner, to get to know them individually, not just to treat this as some impersonal thing where, yeah, we've got missionaries, isn't it great, but it doesn't impact your own life. So there is a challenge to us to follow the example of men like Gaius and men like Wilberforce and thousands and thousands of other everyday ordinary believers who are the ones who are responsible for putting missionaries out on the field and getting the gospel to millions and millions of people. As I was doing some research for this 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 week, I ran across a story of a of a um, evangelist, small time country evangelist back in the turn of the century, early 1900s. And this man died in the 1950s, I think. And on his deathbed, he confessed to a friend that his life as an evangelist was a waste. He didn't know of any significant converts. He had very few converts. He was just sort of a lay evangelist who went from town to town and he uh, church to church, and he never felt like he had much of an impact. Yet in one of those towns, in one of those evangelistic opportunities, a 10-year-old boy by the name of W.A. Criswell trusted the Lord. W.A. Criswell later became the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And Criswell was just a, a, a giant of orthodoxy and almost single-handedly through his influence turned the Southern Baptist Conference around back in the 1970s when they were fighting a battle over the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And through the influence of Criswell, hundreds of thousands of people got saved. So you never know, as an ordinary believer, the kind of impact you can have in your spiritual life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the things that we have studied, and to recognize the greater responsibilities that we have as believers in terms of application of doctrine. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do to have eternal life is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of your works, moral reformation, making a bargain with God or any other human factor. It is simply a matter of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.